This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Today we have Eugene Desange, who's a, a lawyer, a former NDP MLA and uh, BC Premier, and uh, a Liberal Member of Parliament, and brings years of experience in all kinds of areas to us this morning. So I would like to welcome you. Thank you. Well, you know, you write a blog and you end up as a speaker here. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I did, and that was, I made a note of that because I usually forget sort of saying things, um, and I don't do written speech, but I made a note of that. Because I think it was Ian that called me. Um, I had done a blog uh, on my blog site, utilsan.org, um, about six months ago, I think. I can't remember the, uh, the month or the date. Um, on... Um, a celebration on Parliament Hill where there was a religious ceremony uh, around Vasakhi, which is um, uh, sort of April 13th, the day um, the last um, guru of Sikhs um, gave them the turban and the beard and those symbols. Um, and I had no particular concern about the celebration, although that's questionable as well from my perspective because. Um, Parliament is the uh, secular sanctum sanctorum of of our country, and um, and and I think that it's important to protect that um, that sanctity uh, of it being secular. Um, but what really um, had bothered me, and this is not to criticize uh, uh, my good friend uh, Justin, because he was a member of Parliament with me for a couple of years when I was there, um, but it is simply to express concern. Um, what he had done that day, um, at the celebration, uh, he, he attended, which is fine, um, although that's, I, I will come to that later on as well. Um, but he made a statement um, about uh, an upcoming um, apology um, to the past, to the, um, about the Kamagata Maru, that he was going to make an apology in the house and he made that announcement at that celebration on Parliament Hill. And I thought that was um, not a very good thing for a prime minister to do. Um, there were several errors. Um, first of all, Kamagatamaru, he said he was going to extend it at the apology to the Sikh community for Kamagatamaru. And firstly, Kamagatamaru was not a Sikh pilgrimage to a religious Canada. Um, it, it was a bunch of Indians, who most of whom happened to be of Sikh faith, um, who had come as economic migrants, as have millions of others um, over time, to Canada. Um, and um, several of them were, were Hindus and Muslims. I think there were one or two Christians as well from Punjab. Um, I don't have the exact numbers. Not They're not really important. Um, and I felt that that... Um, as politicians, I don't believe he was expressly pandering, but that's what it felt like. 
um, and and I, I, it felt wrong uh, that you have celebration, a religious celebration, and then you actually mischaracterize uh, an event, a historical event, and say I'm going to extend uh, the apology to the Sikh community, um, which kind of um, uh, doubled the error uh, in, as far as I was concerned. Um, so I wrote a blog um, saying that it's very dangerous not to be aware uh, when politicians mix religion with politics and that, that the principle of separation of church and state, which took centuries to evolve, um, is a very important principle. Um, I was born and raised in India uh, in a Sikh family, but my uh, maternal grandfather, who spent many years in uh, British Indian jails fighting for the independence of the country, was um, a religious man. He started out singing uh, freedom songs from religious stages uh, and then went on to uh, become a radical, a communist, and remained a communist to his, um, to his dying days. Um, um, not to say that he didn't believe, I mean, you know, India is full of contradictions. Uh, not to say that he, he didn't believe in some kind of a god, but he, he was very clear that whatever he believed about that should not interfere in how he views the government or society as a whole, that that was a personal belief. Um, and, and from my perspective, you know, one can argue with people about what they should believe or shouldn't believe. What's more important than that, um, as a person who has been in government and in politics, what's very important for me uh, is that we kept those beliefs that we might have about creation or not creation or evolution, we keep them away from the business of the state, that we don't, not to say that, that, that you ignore science, but to simply say that state should be equidistant from all faiths of that nature, all beliefs of that nature. Um, in a place like India where I grew up, um, they view secularism as different. They, people like Nehru, um, when the, when the uh, country first became independent, viewed secularism very differently. It evolved over time that their politicians believe that you are secular if you uh, go to all the temples and mosques and churches and, and, you, and you exclude no one from your, from your uh, you know, religious pilgrimages. Um, I think that's, that's antithetical to how secularism should be. Secularism should mean that state is equidistant. The emphasis should be on distance between separation between church and state. Because otherwise, um, you know, what you're doing is you're pandering here, you're pandering there. I mean, I, I've seen, um, and Justin isn't the only uh, culprit in this. All, all Most politicians do this. They will go to mosque one day and Gurdwara the next day. Um, you know, um, a Buddhist pagoda the following day. But what irks me um, as, a, as someone who's been looking at that kind of politics in this country for a long time is that I never see any politician go to a Christian church of any importance and say that I'm coming to a Christian church. 
which actually makes it into pandering if you go to all the other places but you don't go to a Christian church. And that's where the problem is because what happens with immigrants, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot, when immigrants are uprooted, taken out of their daily context of the lives they had lived before they come to a place like this, what becomes a lot more important for them was usually something that was of passing interest in the home they came from. For instance, you know, if you ask a Syrian in Syria, they will tell you they're Syrians. If you ask a Syrian here, they would generally say, I'm a Muslim Canadian, not a Syrian Canadian. Uh, if you ask um, Punjabis or Indians generally, um, you know, many of the Sikh Canadians have become Sikh Canadians rather than Indian Canadians or Punjabi Canadians. Um, what happens is that you take them out of their roots and their, the, the social context and the cultural milieu they live in, they cling to something that they think they understand. They may not necessarily understand religion, but they think they do because they know, know all the rituals, they, they go to all the, all the uh, congregations. Um, and so they, they cling to that which they think they know, and that then begins to um, generally, if not absolutely exclusively, I would say exclusively, uh, begins to define their lives in a country like Canada. And that, in fact, and, and the, and the um, Canadian politicians fall into that trap. They, you know, if you ask Justin Trudeau, I don't know what his faith is, maybe a Catholic, maybe something else. Uh, but if you ask him, is he a Catholic, first and foremost? Is he a Catholic Canadian? Or is he a French Canadian? I'm sure he'd say he's a, he's a, he's a French Canadian. Um, he wouldn't say he's a Catholic Canadian. But it's pretty easy for him and other politicians to come to uh, Indian community and say, you're a Sikh Canadian, you're a Hindu Canadian, you're a Muslim Canadian. And it, it, is, it is a vicious circle then that begins to compartmentalize a, a, a population by religion. And that is very, very dangerous for a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-faith country like Canada. I'm not, you know, I, I don't argue about people's faith. People ask me, um, you know, when I first got elected in 1991, um, one of the journalists asked me how I defined myself, and I, I still remember I said, you know, I'm a Canadian citizen, I'm an Indian by heritage, I'm Punjabi by uh, language, mother tongue. Uh, if at all anyone is interested, I was born and raised in a Sikh family. But that's my private life. That's nothing to do with who I am. That, that's what, you know, and, and I think that that's um, the politics in Canada is on a very dangerous and a slippery slope um, when Politicians feel the need uh, always to go to a mosque or a, or a gurdwara or a pagoda um, um, to, to, to say, we like you. And, we're, um, and, and, I, and, I, and, and that really worries me because in India we see the, um, the, the um, effects of what's happening. You know, politicians go to all different places and they get these little, uh, you know, spots put on their foreheads or they go to 
um, the golden temple and they put a turban on and you know they they, they pretend to be one with all the minorities uh, why can't they be one with all the minorities based on the needs of the community um, based on social justice and equality and all of the things that 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 make this country what it is and um, and you know I I was on a trip to India I just came back I was uh, um, launching the Indian edition of uh, of my autobiography and uh, people asked me there and, and I was worried uh, with the emphasis on Hindutva sort of people being Hindus it's a majority Hindu country and and the Prime Minister of the country is not de-emphasizing that uh, all of his followers uh, they are on uh, you know beef vigilantes or cow vigilantes and and they are um, for instance, they were beating people up, uh, Dalits, who have been skinning dead cows for centuries as the lowest caste in the hierarchy, uh, were certainly beaten up because they were skinning dead, dead cows. And you know, they turned it around. What they did in protest, they started bringing dead cows and dropping them in front of the Hindu temples and say, you Brahmins, you now skin the, the dead cows. Um, so, yeah, but what I'm saying is that when religion begins to become important in the affairs of the state, in the politics of the country, in the way the politicians appeal um, to people of different faiths, then we're on a, on a very dangerous and slippery slope. Um, and, you know, I um, used to go to the temples and speak about issues before 1984. Um, 1984 made me realize that you don't want to go to the temples and speak about politics. Because 1984 in Canada and in India, we saw the dangerous, potent mix of religion and politics uh, do a lot of violence and a lot of create a lot of problems for people. And, um, and so you wouldn't catch me dead making a political speech in the temple. If they want me to go and say hi, I'd be happy to go and say hi. Um, so I think I, that's how the the conversation started, and I was happy to come here um, and just be part of the crowd and talk about this issue because I, it actually concerns me. And and I say that again, Justin Trudeau isn't the only culprit. The most politicians, from low to high, uh, big time to small time politicians, actually unthinkingly do this, unthinkingly play into the hands of exclusivist minorities um, that come to this country as economic immigrants and then sometimes feel not connected with the rest of society. It's natural for them to congregate or come together with the people that they know or, or speak the same language and have the same cultural practices. Uh, that's very natural. The politicians ought to be actually going to them and encouraging them to kind of disintegrate those ghettos and, and move out and, and integrate more. But by, but by going there and not questioning those things and simply saying, I'm, I like you the way you are, and I'm going to dress the same as you are and pray the same with you for a day, I think we are um, we are in a very dangerous and a slippery slope. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Uh, I understand you're familiar with the law. Somewhat. <laughs> so, my question is, uh, there's a phrase, uh, in good faith and indecent language. Can you explain what in good faith means and in decent language means? 
I, I, nobody's asked me that question ever. Um, <laughs> so, so I will try. I, when, when we, faith ought not to have um, a faith or a religious connotation. The word faith doesn't always have to do with religion. I think in good faith, we, we place our faith in something, in laws, right, in, in equality, in justice. Um, that faith isn't the faith you might think Christianity or Sikhism or something else is. So in, when you say in good faith, one could argue that it, it may have started uh, uh, as a religious thing. Uh, but I think the way we use the, the expression in good faith, at least when I use it, um, you know, I did this in good faith, which means I did this honestly, believing it to be the legitimate thing to do. Decent language? Yeah. Unlike Trump. <laughs> um, yes, I, I was thinking about the subject myself before I came, and I have a similar viewpoint. It seems, though, that it's the model of secularism that we have in Canada that maybe needs to be rethought. It seems that we have a multi-faith model of secularism, so that in our public institutions, we have religious representatives on the boards of some of those institutions. And I'm wondering if you have another model um, for that. For instance, our university has religious colleges, so the people from the religious colleges have representation in the administration of the university at various levels. A secular university might not have uh, religious colleges. You might be able to study religion in a department of history or in a religious studies program but might not have those colleges there because those colleges then get representation on administrative boards. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would differ with you on that because, because academia, um, if it means anything to me, means independence. And, and if in the context of the academia you want to now create a caste system and say, faith institutions or, you know, like colleges of divinity or others shouldn't be able to exist as part of the universities, then you're taking a part of the discourse that happens in those universities away. Um, and if they're going to be part of those uh, institutions, then they ought to be represented like the others are. And I'm sure at, at the University of British Columbia, I know that there's a, there's a college attached to it, uh, I don't think that they're that powerful to, to be able to influence the rest of society uh, to the um, um, detriment of, of promotion of secularism. I mean, they have a point of view. It's a legitimate point of view as an academic interest. Um, and I, I don't believe that we should be saying to them they should, they should be out of there and have something separate. That's, that's my view. Maybe uneducated, but... <laughs> Hi, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. It's very stimulating and interesting stuff. Uh, I apologize if this is repetitive. It seems like something you might have addressed uh, on your blog or elsewhere. Uh, I'm sure you would understand that the, the Trinity Western University controversy is felt pretty keenly in this room and by myself personally. Uh, and with your legal background, I'm curious what your take is basically on, on that uh, division of you know, religious freedom versus what I would call equality rights. Uh, in my mind, I, I think the equality rights should 
trump religious freedom in this case. Uh, but I'd be very curious to hear uh, your perspective and get as technical as you like because I love that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, at an emotional level, um, uh, two of my sons are lawyers, and when the when the bank, when the uh, BC bar was uh, voting on this, uh, I talked to them. I said, you know, you should go uh, vote Trinity down. <laughs> um, and they were eager to do that anyway. Um, but I think that, that and, and, and I believe that, that under the umbrella of religion, or religious freedom, there comes a time when in a society, or in society at large across the world, um, you know, one, one needs to stop discrimination. And, and that's how I come at it, personally. And uh, and I believe that um, that you know while I while I appreciate the the uh, hesitance that, that religious people have about this issue at uh, Trinity Western, I believe they're wrong. They're on the wrong side of history. They should um, be open enough to say we believe this, but we're not going to put this restraint on students coming into this university. That's how you live together. And I think that they're wrong in saying we are going to uh, impose this restriction um, in the name of religious freedom uh, and the rest of society should just accept it. And I think that I can believe what I want, but I don't think that I should be imposing that restraint on an academic institution where, where you know, freedom and, freedom and equality is what it's all about. I would be interested in hearing more about um, political correctness, and I know you've done quite a lot and you're touching on that this morning, of course, but I'd like to hear more about how you define that. I uh, happen to agree with everything you said about I, I, politicians I, rushing around pandering to various religions, uh, which I think is part of that, but I would like to hear some more. Thank you. Well, I can show you the bruises I have from the last six months or so. Um, I did a uh, I did a piece uh, on my blog in good faith um, because I actually believe um, that um, you know we particularly majority Canadians which are white Canadians uh, particularly men um, out of uh, concern for feelings of people like me who don't look white um, um, or are white. Um, uh, they self-censor, and they don't always speak frankly. Now, when I wrote that, that was pre-Trump, and I, I didn't have Trump in mind. <laughs> um, um, but I, I still believe that, um, you know, anybody who believes um, that we in Canada now, in politics, or in the social justice advocacy areas, that we have a free and frank discussion of issues uh, needs to wake up. We don't. We self-censor. Um, and that doesn't mean that we should be hurtful um, uh, or, or have callous disregard for others' feelings. But the fact is that we should be able to address the issues without, without always uh, being worried that somebody might be thin-skinned enough to feel offended. And yeah, I have a, I have a very um, good friend who is an Indian politician um, um, in, in India, and, and his term for that is 
there is a lot of competitive offendedness going around in the world nowadays. Like I'm more offended than the next person about something. You know, if I'm not more offended, then then I'm not more just. Then I'm not better than the next person. And I think that that needs to stop. Um, you know, you, you don't have always to be offended and asking for apologies. Um, and we need to, uh, more important than, than, than an apology is if, if a person actually dresses the conduct or the problem at, at the core of that. Um, and, uh, and I actually, um, you know, when I did that blog, um, I think I had maybe 15,000 hits and, uh, and I don't even remember how many comments. And I actually stopped uh, the comments on my, on my uh, blog at that time because I can't, I can't address them. I don't have the time to. Um, and, and the other thing on social media is that people feel free to be hateful. Um, you know, people stop being thoughtful. In fact, they, they exactly made my point that, <laughs> that you know, uh, it, when, when they are in the anonymity of the, of the social media world, um, their true feelings come out. If, if you're face to face with them, they will never be that hateful. Um, and so which means, you know, people don't say what they feel. I mean, I don't mean that people should be hateful publicly to each other. I simply mean we should be free. Um, and and our politicians are the worst on the, in that regard because they uh, are always looking at you know not offending this group and not offending that group and and everything is all right and we have no problems and, and you know that kind of attitude doesn't make a country better. That's my feeling, and I uh, got told off for that by CBC too. To a certain extent, this follows on from what you were saying about Trinity Western University, and that's, uh, what's your take on religious schools that we have here in BC? You know, there's a lot of independent schools, and then they're, they're all um, various Christian denominations mostly, and then there's the, uh, the, the um, one, and I don't know what else there is. Um, the, the other thing, when, this is years and years ago, when my kids, we were living in Montreal at the time, and you had then, when, when you sent kids to school, you had to choose French Catholic, French Protestant, English Catholic, English Protestant, or Jewish. And you had to put them down into one of those categories. And uh, we actually put our kids into French Catholic. We're not French or Catholic. But <laughs> it's just that this was the nearest school and all their friends went there. You were defined. And, 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 Actually, the attitude there, because it was the sort of fallback, um, it was the place where everyone went who didn't fall into one of the other categories. They were quite um, accepting of all sorts of different viewpoints. And like what you say Trinity Western ought to do, that is, they said, this is what we believe, but if you don't, that's fine. Okay, so anyway, the first question was, what do you think about all these various religious schools in BC. Well, I, I don't recall everything about my past life because you know memory is is very um, tricky. It forgets the things it, it doesn't want to remember. Um, but I remember when I was part of the government in British Columbia, um, the platform of the NDP was to stop funding to private schools, if I remember correctly. Um, um, and then when we got into power and we knew that we weren't going to be able to do that um, because um, 
you know, tradition sometimes is pretty hard to deal with and contend with. If you ask me ideally what we should have, I mean, we have in this country a constitutional issue. You have embedded in the constitutional traditions and conventions and perhaps even in all the agreements that put Kaddena together that, you know, Ontario funds Catholic schools. And so it's pretty hard to undo that history unless we come to a peaceful collective decision that we should actually stop that practice. And those who feel otherwise will always be a hindrance to that ending of that tradition. But if you ask me ideally what should be, I don't believe state has a business, any state should have any business in helping faith schools, faith-based schools in any way, shape, or form. Churches, temples, mosques, they have tons of money. They can help those schools. I don't think that public tax dollars should be going to those schools. I mean, they might argue that, look, I mean, we are people of certain faiths and we pay taxes too. Therefore, our children should get some subsidy from the government. I mean, that's an argument. But I think as a principle, we should actually aspire to end this practice if we can. And I know that it would be almost next to impossible to do because of the constitutional issues. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And I agree with most of what you said. And I have a question regarding immigration. The way we mostly grow our population in Canada is through immigration. I believe we accept around 300,000 immigrants per year, something around that. When I immigrated, I went through a test based on the point system. And they asked me about my educational background, my economic background, my business background, and so on. They never asked me what I thought about women's rights, about gay rights, and so on, which are shaped in many cases by religion. So I thought about what people call here Canadian values. And I don't think we should call them Canadian values. We should call them human values. They are not just unique to Canada. In other countries, like in the Netherlands, after some religious violence, specifically the killing of Theo van Gogh, they changed their immigration policy a little bit by trying to, in some way, filter immigrants based on what their religious prejudices were. They show them a movie where they show partially naked people, gay people holding hands, and all the kind of things which they are forced to watch before applying for immigration. So they kind of try to dissuade immigrants that don't agree with those values from immigrating to the Netherlands. Do you think that our immigration system should be exclusively based on the economic potential of the immigrant, or we should take into account what that immigrant values regarding human values? Should that be our consideration in the qualification process to immigrate to Canada? Well, I mean, I don't think that you can actually do a values test. I think that that's just totally important to what we as Canadians stand for. But what you can do 
Um, you know, even, even, you know, let, let, let's be practical. Very few people from Europe want, want to come to Canada. And, uh, and so you have to access immigrants from the rest of the world if you want to um, bring more immigrants. Um, and that um, is the reality. Um, and from my perspective, you know, what Leach is talking about is just, just absurd. Um, that's almost like Trump. Um, and, but what we need to do is, once we invite people into this country, we should make clear to them that they have an onus to actually understand the political culture of this country, the values that drive the political culture. Um, you know, we aren't perfect. We should say we, we messed up the lives of our Aboriginal people over centuries. Um, Canada isn't a perfect society. It's more f perfect than it used to be. Um, so, you know, we can't be holier than thou. We understand there are human failings in each and every society. But I, I don't believe that you can do a values test. Uh, I don't believe what Netherlands is doing um, would be accepted, acceptable to Canadians. It's not acceptable to me. I think we should have immigrants come into the country based on need for skills. But then, once people are here based on the need, um, our need for their skills, Politicians have an obligation, more than anybody else, to say to them publicly, just like Angela Merkel is saying in Germany, you come, you change. Uh, because if you come and you don't change, then you're simply coming for the economic opportunities and uh, not the rest of the quality of life that we have in this country. Equality, freedom, liberal democracy. And, and I think that that's, an, that's something we haven't been doing uh, as Canadians. I mean, I heard Justin Trudeau mention recently somewhere, and I can't recall where it was, the need for immigrants to undertake some change on their own part. Uh, that needs to be done more often. Our public leaders, our political leaders need to understand, um, you know, there, there is a, I don't know whether the CBC is made public, but they, they um, talk to me about uh, a recent study um, or poll that they have. We Canadians think that we are very liberal, very open, uh, very accepting. 69% of Canadians are now saying immigrants need to change when they come to this country. And in, in the United States of America, that number is about 53%. Why is that? In America, people understand that immigrants come and change more than they do in, in Canada. And people understand in Canada, when immigrants come, they don't change. So if we want a peaceful and harmonious society, the political leadership of this country, opposition and government alike, need to actually talk about this publicly. Need for integration, not need for assimilation. You know, I don't, I'm not interested in changing people's religion or changing people's, you know, you can't change my skin color, right? I, I mean, I am who I am. Um, so, but it is the value system. It is how, how we treat women, how we treat other minorities, um, uh, how, how accepting we are of each other's differences. Um, and and uh, the fact is that Canadians were more accepting of immigrants 15, 20 years ago, and they're less accepting now. And that is because the political leadership has done a very poor job uh, of, of impressing upon newcomers 
to be more open to change and when you impress upon newcomers the need to be more open to change you also say to the canadian society you need to be more open too i just want to mention what rodney said i grew up in montreal too where those were the choices my parents who were jewish sent me to the jewish school although all the kids went to the english protestant school because that was the one at the end of the block but it's different montreal well quebec it is different in montreal that is now the montreal school board whereas it used to be the montreal no oh god montreal protestant school board this sorry the protestant school board of greater montreal that was it and they even had badges and interestingly when i went to high school only 10 percent of the kids in my protestant high school were not were only 10 percent were not jewish everybody else 90 percent were jewish but it was still a protestant school anyway that's just the way it was then but now it's different um what i you were talking about how you feel that parliament should be a distance between both sec uh, religion and and politics am i incorrect that at the end of december there is a tree or lights or something to celebrate and they're not celebrating the solstice they're celebrating christmas well, and if and if so but even if not how would you see this how what would it look like to have this um the divide that you were talking about between the two well i i remember saying at the beginning that you know holding religious celebrations isn't necessarily um a good thing but i think ultimately um you know it's it's from my perspective and i i may have different opinion from you. Um, I give you my experience. When I first became an MLA uh, in 91, um, we just um, um, used to wish um, season's greetings. After a couple of years, you know, you used to send cards to people saying season's greetings. After a couple of years, I realized um, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying Merry Christmas to people who believe that's important for them, or Happy Hanukkah. Um, and that's from, you know, Christmas is, is not, like my little children when they were growing up, uh, three sons, they needed a Christmas tree at home. They wanted a Christmas tree because all the other children in the neighborhood had a Christmas tree. We, would use, we used to bring Christmas tree and light up, and I know my grandchildren, the two of them live with me, their mother uh, dresses up a Christmas tree, decorates one every year, <laughs> and uh, and you know we're not Christians. Um, I, um, from my perspective, I think that if you if you have that as a tradition, it's not necessarily now for me a religious tradition. It's almost close to being secular. I'm not I'm not a Christian. In my home, there's a there's a Christmas tree. Um, I don't think you, you know, that that's like taking the um, there's something in the in the Quebec legislature that's embedded there from some time ago. Um, I don't think you need to do undo history, um, but you don't need to actually follow that historical tradition and say now everyone from all faiths can come and have their celebrations on Parliament Hill. I, I think that 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 I think that you will create a ruckus. If you if you undid the Christian um, uh, Christmas tree, but that doesn't mean that you have to add to that 
and say now we should do one on e, then we should do one on something else and because then you're going on a slippery slope. There's something called history and then there's something called you add to um, that history and I, I'm not in favor of adding to that history. I understand where it comes from. Then that's the same as the politicians going to the different religions and not going to a church. I, I don't think, well, <laughs> I, I, may, you know, I, I don't have to agree with you on everything. I'm, I'm simply saying to you, I don't believe that the, the lighting of a Christmas tree on Parliament Hill, to me, sends a religious message, and I'm not a Christian. Um, and there is a Christmas tree in all my three sons' homes uh, at Christmas, and they're not Christians. They don't even go to a te Sikh temple unless they go to a wedding or something. They're totally kind of a-religious. Um, and I think that in that sense, there's part of history of a particular place. If you can strip it from its religious sort of um, part, it can remain as a secular symbol of the history of the country as it was. And I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm troubled about increasing it. If you had, uh, you know, uh, Sikhs doing their celebrations of Parliament Hill, then Muslims doing their celebration of Parliament Hill, then something else. Buddhists come, they do it, and then the Jewish community would say, we want to do it. You'd be doing about sort of one religious celebration a month. Uh, then it would become a, a quasi-religious institution and not the parliament that we know. Uh, this is not, I got a couple questions, but a comment on the Christmas tree. Um, due to circumstance, I was in a Sikh household just before Christmas. Uh, the gentleman claimed to be a very devout Sikh, although he did not, he was not the K, five Ks. And he, they had probably the most elaborate, biggest Christmas tree I've ever seen in my life. It was huge, and the presents were just beyond what I would ever think of doing. But I said, well, he said, oh, the kids like it. <laughs> um, my questions are, do you think Canada needs a constitutional clause that is more in line with what the Americans have, a stronger separation of church and state? Or would it be better if we just let that evolve through court action and other things? And the second question was, should church properties be exempt from taxes? <laughs> Since I'm not running for anything, I can say that. <laughs> um, you know, if you want to take away uh, the tax-exempt status, status from churches, then you'll have to take away tax-exempt status from all non-profits. Where, 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 where do you stop? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, non-profits do good activism, good social justice work. Um, it, it's um, it, If you simply said nobody gets any tax exemption, then I think you, you could argue. But but we have so many non-government organizations, non-profits doing very good work. Um, it, it, you know, you, know, you can't you can't, you can't uh, just focus on on churches and the constitutional. Oh, the constitution. You know, I'm a great believer uh, that laws don't necessarily uh, uh, solve a problem, particularly law on secularism. 
law on separation of church and state. I think that is something that has to evolve. Um, uh, and, and the politicians should be careful because Canada of today isn't the Canada of 1900s or even 1960s when I came to this country. There was diversity here long before the whites came. I mean, you have Aboriginal diversity, 50 languages on the West Coast being spoken by, by the Aboriginal community. So the, so the diversity didn't begin with immigration after Trudeau. Diversity was here when the whites arrived here. And the diversity has, has been now become, it's become more complex, uh, more pervasive. It's now from all over the world. Uh, from all different religions, all different ethnicities, all different language groups. Um, and, and as that increases, the need for separation of church and state is going to become a lot more important. Um, it wasn't um, as obvious um, when you didn't have um, other faiths in large numbers present in this country. Um, and in fact, um, if politicians don't become more active on this issue and more understanding and more involved, um, you know, as I just said in India, I was, I said, you know, you guys need secularism to survive as a country because it has a million minorities, and if you don't have secularism sort of underpinning the whole government, you will have a million mutinies on your hand. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Canada is a much smaller country in terms of population. It's more manageable. It's more affluent. Uh, but still, you know, it's not always going to be like, like this. I mean, there's more diversity coming. And if there's more diversity coming, you have to be uh, more alert to these issues. And Canada has been kind of sleeping its way through these issues. Um, it can't do that anymore. But I don't, I don't think law is, is the answer. I guess about the Christmas tree, I think of it as a pagan symbol of the, symbol of the uh, wooded west. And I feel like this is part of the wooded west, and it's got a romanticism to it that is beyond Christianity, it's pre-Christian, whatever. Anyhow, my question is a monarchy. Um, I guess you have to pledge to the queen or something when you're the premier or when you're an MP or whatever. And I was wondering how you feel about immigrants having to pledge to the queen when they're in the, um, when they, their citizenship ceremony. Do you think that's something that also ought to be excised from Canada, whatever. You know, I'm a lot more pragmatic on those kinds of issues. I mean, I, I just think that, that what works, we should keep it. And I, from my perspective, uh, monarchy doesn't cost Canada anything. Um, it has a system that has served it well um, over the centuries. Um, you know, um, if you don't have a monarch, then the governor general would become the president and and the president would have, uh, right now, uh, I'm actually a lot happier with uh, Trudeau's repatriation of the, of the Constitution, that constitutionally we can change all the laws. We don't need to depend on, on UK Parliament. That's real freedom. I think monarchy is just, uh, it's an institution that, that you know, majority of the Canadians actually support. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to create a disruption in the life of the country with an issue that doesn't matter. If it mattered really um, to, to how the democracy functions, uh, whether justice is done or not, whether there's social justice in the country or not, if it mattered 
then I'd say, let's get rid of it. It doesn't matter. It's just a symbol. And from my perspective, let it be. Good morning. Um, it's very refreshing to have an ex-politician uh, um, uh, provide the ideas you do, obviously. Uh, we're in the minority. Well, no, I guess by some of the surveys, you probably heard we did a survey, and BC is one of the most secular places in Canada. What, what are we at, about 70% or something? And yet we have a premier that consults the Bible when she has to make big decisions. So kind of a contradiction there. But I, I just wanted to ask you a question. I, I was just just in, in terms of some of the discussions we've had today about your, your, you're saying there's nothing wrong with it, say, having the lights on Parliament Hill and so forth, and you have a Christmas tree at home. But I think there's a contradiction in that because it's your home, and you can do whatever you want. And if you remember the famous Einfeld show where the Costanzas had a steel pole to celebrate, that's what they did. Uh, it was a, a mockery, I think a mockery out of all of that. But to me, that's the contradiction. It's a tradition of 100 years ago when this was a 99% Christian country, uh, people were all the beliefs. If 70% of Canadians are now secular, why would you have lights for Christians? Why wouldn't you have all of them, the very same thing you're talking about? So I, I think that becomes a, a contradiction because if we really want a secular country, then you don't use public things. And the one thing you didn't mention, we have a chapel in our parliament building, don't we? I think, and in fact, there's an active group of parliamentarians that goes to the chapel every day. Why would we, I, I think we do that, I, I can check it. Why would we spend one cent of public money for that if supposedly the government is supposed to be for everybody and represent all religions? I wasn't aware of the chapel. If there's a chapel, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's time that it shouldn't exist. I don't know whether you remember the controversy um, about Van der Zam, um, renting a room, allowing um, a Christian group to come and pray. Um, I was young in those days, uh, and British Columbians just sort of spoke with one voice and say, no, no, we shouldn't do that. So, you know, my, my view on that is very clear. It, I, I wasn't aware of it, um, um, but if there's a chapel, maybe it's time to, to, to say goodbye, um, unless you want to have uh, others have their quote-unquote chapels in Parliament, which wouldn't be a very good thing. But, you know, Christmas tree is, as I said, um, you know, if you're looking for consistency in human affairs, you're not going to find it. And, and sometimes it leads to results that may not be what you really were looking for. From my perspective, when you come to a country and there are certain embedded traditions Unless they harm someone, unless they stand in the way of equality, social justice, and progress, I would say let them be. Um, you know, a, a Trinity Western tradition of restraining uh, certain conduct is wrong. Um, I don't find anything wrong with a, with a Christmas tree out on, on the lawns uh, of the Parliament um, of Canada, because I think that that's a tradition that's been going on for a long time. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't demean other religious groups. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic. I'm not consistent on everything. Of, you keep traditions that are out of date. Like, like I agree with you. If it's a good tradition, whatever. But if the tradition runs out of time because it's outdated, just like our values toward women, they couldn't vote, and then women got to vote. Well, 
we could have said, well, we've had this tradition of women not voting for thousands of years, so of course, let's keep it. But a Christmas tree is no hindrance to equality. No, I love my Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. It's good to have you here. Yeah. Um, some of the comments that Kirsten and Murray have been making, uh, I'd, I'd like to echo, but say them just a little bit differently. I agree that change has to come slow, and it can't be done, it needs to be done somewhat pragmatically, given money, time. We need to eat away and erode some of the historical injustices. So for me, a compromise, because I don't want to see 50 celebrations in Parliament Hill, Let's just have a holiday tree, and on some day, starting maybe with the 21st, where the solstice starts, we can have the secular groups come and put their symbols on the tree. There's 150 branches on this tree, and then the Jews can come and put a menorah on, the Christians can come and put ornaments on, but we call it a holiday tree, and it represents the diversity of Canada. And we do that over three or four days. We don't give them the whole lawn for some witchcraft celebration, okay? But we do, because that, that is not practical. But we do start to rename and re-symbolize the secularization of this country. And I think the call of the Christmas tree can change if we do it gradually and use different words, because words are really important. And what we do, as are these symbols, okay? But we don't have to do it all at once. But we can be creative, just like I said. You can call it something different and let everybody join in and put their little ornament on and the photographers are there and so they're in their native dress or whatever. That's cool. But we've got to start changing it to the secularity that, that's been mentioned. I personally think we need to expand the laissez-faire concept of the French which is to separate out the public and private spheres of our life. And I like the definition that one judge came up with in Quebec, if I can be so uh, to read it. And that is that the state is not to use its power to promote the, the uh, participation, participation of believers or non-believers in the public life to the detriment of others. Now, those are some words that if Wittgenstein gets involved, he's going to ask, well, what does promote mean? And what does detriment mean? So we have to have a fair and enlightened judicial system to take a statement like that and keep acting on it across the years. I, I don't think you need an answer for me, but your statement is self-explanatory. Um. Thank you so much for coming. Very nice to hear you speak. Um, I just wanted to know what your take would be on what's happening in Richmond just now with the issue of Chinese signage overtaking uh, everything, it seems. Um, it's um, If I lived in Richmond, I would... I have to be honest to say I would be very resentful that now I, everywhere I look I see signs that I can't read. 
and I don't know how that came about or why it wasn't nipped in the bud or when we had the issue of Strata Corporation wanting all their meetings in Chinese and so that the non-speaking Chinese people wouldn't understand if they came to the meeting. That seems, anyway, I don't live there and so, you know, it's easy for me to sort of ignore it, but it is an issue and I'd be curious to know what your take is on that. I'd actually done a short blog on it in those days when the meeting controversy came up. I believe that, you know, holding, when you have non-Chinese speakers in the meeting and members of the Strata, it was just wrong to have a meeting in Mandarin exclusively. And the interpretation isn't always the best way of communicating. Much is lost in interpretation. But, you know, the general controversy in Richmond, I don't believe laws will change that. I mean, I think that's again a weakness of the civic government. They have rarely, other than one or two of them, they have rarely spoken out encouraging the merchants and others to have signs in both languages, English and whatever else they want to use. And we don't need to say half the signs should be in language, half the size. It could be, you know, people should be encouraged. And the problem in Richmond has been that the council has been very, very reluctant to speak up, other than a couple of them, to speak up on this issue. And I understand that it's changing. They passed a bylaw recently. I don't remember the details of the bylaw, at least for some signs, saying half the space in the sign should be in English and the other half Chinese. You know, look, you know, I think it's the problem because when we have immigrants coming into the country, we as politicians and public leaders don't encourage, don't make any demands on the newcomers. Demands not in a rough, you know, legalistic way. We don't say to them, look, we expect you to change a little. Like when I came to this country in 1968, and I actually say to people that if I had come to Canada in 1973, instead of coming to Canada in 1968, I wouldn't be who I am. Because by 1973, thousands of more Indo-Canadians had come, you know, Indian immigrants had come. The institutions were beginning to evolve in the community that you didn't need to speak English, you didn't need to learn English, you didn't need to go to the neighborhood house, that you began to kind of develop somewhat separately and on your own. And when I came to this country, the Indian community was very small. It was very well integrated into the larger society. And, you know, I remember our first home, you know, we would have white neighbors on either side, and we would, you know, exchange chicken curry for whatever they were making and talk to them. And I knew some English because I came from England. And if I hadn't come into that kind of milieu, I wouldn't be who I am. And I think it's important, and 
the Indians of that time, that we call Indo-Canadians, used to actually say to people when they came, like they would say to me, um, older men, son, go get an education, go to university, you're young. Um, and and go, going to university is, is one of the better ways of integrating, going to school, obviously, with other people. And and I think that, that, that politicians are failing in their duty. And that's why sometimes they don't like what I say, because I, I believe well, they feel that I have more license to say the things I can because I'm brown. Um, but I think they have an obligation to say to people, we welcome you, we love you, this is diversity, this is wonderful. But, you know, to make this statement, um, just to say diversity is a great strength. Well, that's foolish to say that unless you make that diversity work by living with each other, talking to each other, sharing with each other, arguing peacefully with each other, you know, working to improve the neighborhood with each other. If diversity isn't that mingling and living together, then diversity can become a huge weakness over time. I mean, I remember, I don't know whether you remember, I remember the Liverpool riots a um, long time ago. Um, they had a, a, a racial element to them. And that is because if, if you don't have integration going on, if you don't have encouragement from civic, provincial, and federal public leaders uh, to say we are one country, one society, one people, we should integrate, we should learn from each other, and be open. Um, we say to Canadians, you know, you, you need to be open to immigration because we need immigration. And then we should say to immigrants that they should be open to some change as well. And we don't do that. I and mean, that's the big problem. Sorry for just talking. Thank you very much, Akami. Uh, I really respect you for a long time. And uh, I want to ask you a question because I love Canada so much. But now uh, I must say this. Uh, do you think uh, I have several questions, but I will try to make it very short. Uh, do you think America, and uh, I had to ask you a question about UN too, because there's a problem going on in Sri Lanka. They had 30 years of war. I think it's all over the websites, everything. They had a majority Buddhist, Sinhalese Buddhist in the country, and there was Tamil Hindus, Tamil uh, Catholics, Christians, we'll say. Now they want uh, UN and America, all the European countries, they want the Sri Lanka's constitution to be changed and they want the Buddhism thrown out of the constitution. Now it's a big problem. They had 30 years of war, first between Tamils and Sinhalese. They said it's a, uh, they said it's a, it was terrorism. Then, uh, then they say it's a communal violence or something. Uh, and I think the politicians, even America, they want to create a religious war now because the war is over now, they can't sell their arms uh, to Sri Lanka. And uh, politicians should be, I love Canada, but the constitution, it was more than decades and decades the Buddhism was in Sri Lanka, in the constitution, everything. Why UN and all the Americans and everybody trying to change that constitution? I want to ask you your idea. Uh, 
let them uh, have their Buddhism in the country, right? They they allow the other religions to uh, have their own rights. They never disgrace or say you can't believe in this religion or that religion. Uh, now the people are uh, fighting like UN has double standards. America has double standards. They everywhere they create war in the world. So. Do you think the UN or the America uh, doing the correct thing about this religion and politics? I don't know whether I gave you the correct, uh, I don't know how to say that, ask the question. You know, I'm not an expert on Sri Lanka, although I should be. I, I came from India. Uh, it's a country sort of below. Uh, um, I was in Sri Lanka in 2005 at the time of tsunami, and I did speak to, um, along with Paul Martin, um, a group of um, uh, Tamil politicians um, and and the government politicians. Um, so I'm aware a little bit. I, you know, I, I'm not going into the history and the problems in Sri Lanka, but just as a general principle, uh, I don't believe that. Um, from my perspective, um, you know, you should have a religion in the constitution. Then you're a theocracy, um, and and you're not really a, a true democracy. Um, and then you're like Pakistan; it's an Islamic republic. It's not a republic, um, and who have minorities, um, and that's one of the fights in India. I mean, India is is a secular country by its constitution. Um, and, and the right-wing religious groups uh, have been wanting to change the, the nature of, of government, not necessarily changing the constitution. And, um, and I believe that if you have a secular constitution, you don't have uh, the mention of the religion, you are making a statement to the rest of the country that everybody is included in the, in the country, in the nation. And, um, and, you know, if Buddhists are a majority, a tiny Tamil minority can't be a threat to a large Buddhist country um, if you make them feel included. I mean, those are the issues. Sometimes legal, legalistic responses aren't, aren't helpful. Thank you. Um, so regarding my previous question about immigration, um, you said that... I know you were dissatisfied. Yes, so you wouldn't uh, do what Netherlands is doing. So when you said that you would not, it would be acceptable to do what Netherlands is doing. Uh, so Netherlands is basically making Im potential immigrants aware of the kind of uh, values that uh, are respected in the Netherlands. Um, what's wrong with letting, like, making them aware of those values? They are not. They are not telling them you are not allowed. They are saying these are the kind of values we accept, uh, and you know, telling a potential immigrant uh, that we don't accept honor killings in Canada before they arrive, not after. What's wrong with that? That's not what you had said. You had said they are testing the immigrants. They're showing them films. That's what you had said. No, no, that's what you had said. No, you remember saying that though. <laughs> That's what you had said, and and then they are checking their responses and then figuring out whether the responses are positive or not. Um, that. That, that, that's what you had said. No, no, but that, 
<laughs> you may not admit that, but that's what you said. But, but no, no, hold on, hold on. But that's what I heard, and I responded that no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, of course, you want to make sure that, like one of the things I did many, many, many years ago, I did a paper for uh, a professor at UBC. Uh, she wanted some research done in the Indian community, and I did some. And I made an argument that we should actually uh, have a crash course for new immigrants coming into the country as to the values. That that's one of the first things. It should be a mandatory course as they come in. Uh, they should have to attend it and talk about political, cultural values of you know liberal democracy, egalitarian society, and all of those things. So I am not, I mean, nobody, uh, I have, if you, if you know my history, I probably have spoken out more against honor killings and genital, female genital mutilation and all of those things. Those aren't values that are accepted in Canada or ought to be accepted anywhere in the world, not just Canada. And uh, so I agree with you um, that, that we should tell new immigrants as they are being interviewed that this is what Canada is, that we have gay and lesbian equality, that we have women's equality, that women can pursue any occupation or profession that they like, um, but but not to test the way you were talking about. I responded to your tests. <laughs> Thank you. Just going just going back to your uh, comments about the tax consideration and churches and religions and nonprofits. I'm sure in your lifetime you probably met David Suzuki, people from the Greenpeace or whatever. I think they would be highly offended in you. Creating a false equivalency that they that that they're similar to churches, because I mean I mean uh, environmental groups, nonprofits, most of them are using science to deal with environmental. You're absolutely right. Deal with environmental most, social issues. Most of them. Right. Okay. Most of them, and they should have more power, as you know. The last government tried to stop. Churches are selling a scam to have a personal relationship with a friend upstairs. Now that's a pretty big difference. And we need progressive nonprofits more than we've ever needed them. You would agree, not only here but all over the world, because they, we need these forces of changes. We don't need people being sold and having and not having to pay any income taxes or any kind of property taxes on one of the biggest scams that's ever been on humanity for thousands of years. Well, you know, all nonprofits aren't secular, and not all are scientific, and you can't say nonprofits only secular and scientific um, you'll have very few left honestly um, and, uh, and, and, and 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 I and I know and that's not to that's not to belittle uh, activism on on the green front or any other front but for some of these activists uh, you know their activism becomes a religion too uh, almost to the point of being fanatics um, and what do you call them? Uh, I'm not talking about David Suzuki, by the way. <laughs> so um, I think that, that, you know, it's a very slippery slope. When you, when you, no matter how well-intentioned, when you begin to demarcate um, compartments uh, and say this we allow and this we shouldn't allow in nonprofits, and uh, churches are nonprofits. Um, and uh, and I, I, it, it's a very slippery slope. I, I, I would hold on to my argument. You talked about separating politics and religion. You've obviously been in politics for a long time, but what, did, 
one of the difficulties is religion, religious groups have so much finance, have so much money and historical influence that they're able to speak to politicians and get access. I want to know sort of two things. First, what's your experience with religious lobbies, if you could comment on that at all, you don't have to, if it's confidential or anything. Uh, and the second is, what advice would you have for individuals and organizations that want to promote a greater secularism like you're talking about, like us? Well, you know, I don't have an experience with religious lobbies because from the 1980s, um, my experience with religion, I think no religion group, religious group would want to lobby me because they thought that I was somewhat more secular than most politicians. Sorry, what was the other one? Uh, how would you, what would you recommend groups like ours and individuals who want to promote that secular system do? Well, I, I think that you should lobby. <laughs> I think you should uh, talk to your MLAs, talk to your MPs, have meetings with them. and You know, all groups um, come and talk to you when you're an MP or an MLA. Uh, and one of the things you learn is that uh, they come fast and furious and they have, they have issues and demands that, that, you know, that they make of, of public at large and the public worse. Um, and if you don't do that um, uh, as a group that is interested in a particular kind of society, uh, then, uh, then your view um, doesn't get heard. Um, you know, in terms of my experiences, by the way, I, I, I can tell you my experiences with the 1980s with the, with the extremist groups uh, amongst the Sikhs is well known, but um, less well known is, is the story. We were the first jurisdiction in North America when I was the Attorney General to pass um, family legislation for gay and lesbian equality, and also uh, pension legislation for gay and lesbian equality in civil service, at least. And I was the Attorney General, so I had to shepherd those bills through the House. And um, so what do I see the next day? Um, um, you know, Archbishop Adam Exner, um, whose name you might know of, uh, from, from the 90s, um, uh, and uh, a president of a well-known president of the Sikh temple and a couple of other religious leaders on the front page of the Vancouver Sun denouncing me. And um, and the argument that uh, the Archbishop made uh, was very interesting. The argument he made was, um, you know, you you want to give um, gay and lesbian common law couples um, uh, rights of survivorship. Um, why won't you give the same right of survivorship to families looking after each other, for a sister looking after a husband, or a brother, or, or a, you know, somebody, a cousin looking after another sibling or cousin uh, in terms of disability, why wouldn't you give the right to survivorship? I said, you know, you want to expand the rights of survivorship, thank you. So <laughs> make the argument, we've already, we've done the gay and lesbians, now we can do the others. I'm happy that you made the argument. But anyway, they, um, you know, so that's, been the experience. Um, um, look, I mean, you know, when religious groups speak, they're like any groups. They have a certain turf that they're trying to protect. Um, and and it's like any other activist. They have a certain turf they're trying to protect. And, um, you know, one of the things I've always enjoyed, and I, and I say this is my weakness, I've always enjoyed reading the letter that the Catholic bishops uh, occasionally issue on the state of the nation in this country about poverty, about 
how inequality needs to be dealt with. And I think that those kind, when, when they speak in those letters uh, with a certain authority and a certain voice, uh, I welcome that kind of intervention and I you know, cherish it because it's important to hear those voices. And they're usually pretty good, you, might, you must admit, when, when they issue those letters. Thank you. Yes, I very much enjoyed your company for an hour or two. Um, the federal government recently passed legislation on euthanasia. Um, my question is, what is it about the parliamentary system that prevents the government from producing laws that people actually like? <laughs> well, because as many people as dislike as like the law, uh, also dislike the law. Generally, it's about 50-50. Generally, most laws, and and politicians are always looking at at the polls and the next election, and 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 things are difficult to move. That's why I think that that's why it took so long on this issue. Um, I mean, this has been a long debate uh, from uh, Sue, Sue uh, Rodriguez time to now. Uh, it's been a long struggle, um, and uh, and that's true with the most difficult legislation because euthanasia it's easier said than actually understood because uh, you know you are dealing with um, huge issues around vulnerable Canadians. Uh, with people with disabilities and others who sometimes can't speak for themselves at that moment. Um, and so I can understand why it took so long. Um, I, I won't fault the government for taking its time. It's, it, those are very difficult issues. And I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there for it. <laughs> and this is our last question. Do you think there would be any interest in our parliament for a parliamentary humanist group, cross-party group that would meet, say, once a month? I'm sure there would be. Um, you know, if if it's if it's an agnostic group, they might join it more more so than if it's an atheist group, because most politicians don't want to say, "I don't believe in that." <laughs> Um, so I mean, there's a slight difference, right? So, you know, like I, most of my life, um, I mean, I go to religious places when invited. I go to um, historic religious places on my own, um, like you know, centuries-old mosques or temples back in India. Just like I took my children there in 1977. Oh, sorry, 1983, three of them, and uh, they asked me, "Why are we here?" Whose place is this? And I simply said, well, this place belonged to your ancestors. You know, I, I didn't want to get into religion, didn't want to get into God, um, but it is part of our history. Um, and, um, and so people in politics are shy of taking positions on issues that they don't need to take positions on. And if, if humanist group simply means um, silence on religion, but talk about secularism and progress and social justice, I'm sure they'd be, they'd be willing to, to, to join. But if you, made it, if you made atheism the central focus of it, uh, they might not. Because then they have to answer questions. <laughs> Can you name names? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs>
Thank you. Well, Giselle, uh, this was very interesting. You can tell from all the questions that we had that people are really interested in this topic. So I'd like to thank you on behalf of our association. Thank you very much.